Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2 for this morning's message and for our time together here today. Last week, we began a brand new sermon series called Committed, and we are looking specifically through the book of Acts, and we're studying the life of the early church, of how God worked in and among them in a powerful way. And then, of course, as God worked in and among them, he also worked through them. And so the question in our life that we are asking this morning and asking over the course of this series is simply this, in your life, who and what are you committed to? Who in your life and what in your life are you committed to? We live in, of course, in a culture today where, frankly, very few people, it seems, like commitment. Uh, We often, of course, uh, renege on commitments. We go the other direction. We commit to something, and then we don't fulfill it, and we, we, we go the other direction. We don't fulfill what we say we're going to do. We also live in a culture where, frankly, it sometimes it's very easy for us. Instead of making the commitment in the first place, we stall and we delay. We, we hesitate to make a commitment because we want to keep our options open. Something better may come along the way. Or perhaps our life is so full of busyness and priorities and distractions and all the different things that, that it's very difficult for us at times to commit to things. And yet at the same time in our culture, we understand the importance of commitment. We understand, even though it's difficult for us sometimes to make a commitment, we understand that it is through commitment that we can grow and we can progress in certain areas of life. For example, an athlete who wants to be effective understands they have to have commitment. They don't just show up, sign up on the participation list, and then show up for the game thinking that they're going to excel and do their best. No, they show up instead for weeks or months in preparation, and they practice week in, day in, and day out as they're preparing so that they can give their best. They understand the importance of commitment. Even students understand the importance of commitment. We have a few students here today, whether you are young kids in elementary school or in high school or in college or working on your master's degree, you understand the purpose and the role of commitment. There's not a single college student that will show up on campus who has signed the check, paid the bill, who leaves that day and says, you know what, I'll come back in four years, I'll walk across the stage, and I will get my diploma. Now, I wish it were that easy, but it's not that easy, okay? Unless maybe you're paying for your kid's education at USC. But anyway, uh, typically it demands commitment. It demands that you sign up. It demands that you show up. It demands that you discipline yourself and give your best. And then once you reach that place of accomplishment where you've been committed, potentially you will graduate. Even scientists today or biologists, people in the various fields, whenever they are looking for a cure for a disease or a solution to some major problem, they understand they're not going to get there easily or immediately. If it were easy, everyone would be doing it. If it was an easy solution, it would have already been found out. But instead, it takes great commitment. While commitment is important for us, it is so difficult at times for us to make that commitment. 
Unfortunately, even in our culture today, sadly, that is also the case when it comes to Christians. We understand the importance of commitment, and yet at the same time, we're often so hesitant to commit. But I submit to us this morning that if Jesus Christ is truly the Lord and Savior of our lives, then we will have no problem committing to the things that he himself committed to. We understand today that Jesus is the Lord over everything. And by that, we're in essence recognizing that Jesus lived a sinless life. He came from heaven. He came to this earth. He faced every temptation and struggle that you and I face today, and yet he never sinned. And the Bible says that he died on the cross literally as a sinless substitute in our place. He died on that cross for you and for me. They took him off that cross and they put him in a grave where he, his body was there for three days. And three days later, he rose again from the grave. He appeared to the disciples for over a 40-day period, over 500 eyewitnesses at one time, verifying the actual fact Jesus had risen from the grave. They knew because he died and rose again that Jesus is the Lord over everything. When you and I say that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, we are in essence saying he is the director, that he is the leader, that he is the boss, he is the ruler of our heart and life. And I believe it stands to reason this morning, if Jesus is truly the Lord of our life, then we're going to live our life not for ourselves, but for him. We're going to live our life now to please him. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think. It's about what the Lord desires and what is pleasing to him and what honors him. And I believe this morning, if we are truly committed to Jesus as the Lord in our life, we will also be committed to the things that he was committed to. It's in that context this morning that I continue to ask us the simple question, and that is this. When it comes to commitment in our life, in your life, and in mine, are we truly committed to Jesus Christ and to his church? Are we committed to Jesus Christ and to his church. We saw last week in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that the early church had gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and we see loud and clear that they had made a first commitment, and that commitment was they were committed to experience Jesus in worship. You remember in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus had appeared to all these witnesses. He's gathered together there on the mountain. He's got these believers gathered there with him. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at them and said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be witnesses of mine in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Bible says instantly then, Jesus began to ascend into heaven. And the disciples stood there amazed at what was going on. And the angel of the Lord spoke and said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand here amazed? This same Jesus that's going up into heaven, he's one day. And the Bible says they tell us exactly what they did in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. The Bible says they went back to Jerusalem, they gathered in the upper room, and there they began to pray. They were committed. They came together and they began to pray and they began to seek God's direction and God's will and God's plans. God, what would you have us to do? What would be the next step? Acts chapter 2 unfolds. It's the first day of the week. Interestingly enough, the same exact day, the first day of the week that Jesus had risen from the grave. And I believe they went in towards that temple area where all the Jews were gathered together for worship on the day of Pentecost. And there they went. And what did they do? They began to pray and they began to praise God together. And they began to tell each other and remind each other of the good things God had done. Why? Because they were committed to experience Jesus in worship. In other words, experiencing Jesus in worship was not an option to them. It was not something that was based upon convenience or based upon comfort. It was something of priority to them. And so they came together. And as they came together on the day of Pentecost, God moved in an extraordinary way. 
The Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit filled them. The Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in tongues and languages that every Jew under heaven could understand. And there on that day, as they declared the mighty deeds of God, the Bible says that Peter stood up and he began to preach the gospel message. And that very day, 3,000 souls were saved. People believed the message and repented of their sins. They were saved. It was an incredible day. It's interesting to note that from that point forward, all throughout the book of Acts, we see the early church coming together in large groups of people and with the intent purpose on the first day of the week of experiencing Jesus in worship. But there's a second commitment that we see of this early church in Acts chapter 2, and it's the focus that we have for our message this morning, and that is this. Not only did they commit to experience Jesus in worship, they committed to engage in community, to engage in community. So I want us this morning... If God has given us the opportunity or the ability to do so, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin reading where we left off last week in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Listen to what the Bible says. Peter said to them, these are the Jews that are gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Repent, and each of you be, what's the word? Baptized, even as we've practiced that today, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Listen to this key statement, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread, listen to this statement, from what? House to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, engaging in community. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. God, that it is authoritative and therefore should speak to each of our hearts and lives today. God, I praise you for what you did in the life of that early church in Acts chapter two and how you worked so mightily in them and among them and through them. But God, I'm reminded today that you are still the same God today and you still desire to work and move in much the same way today. So God, I pray that we would be willing to hear what you have to say through this example and through this instruction. And I pray, God, not only would we hear it, but that we would respond to it with faith and total obedience. We know that you're worthy of nothing less, so we pray that you be glorified in that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Engaging in community. For years here at Crosslink, we have stated that our mission is to impact the valley and to bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that today is still our mission here at Crosslink. But we've also said something else, and we've often said that it is our vision then in fulfilling that 
to invite people to meet Jesus, invite people to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, and to share Jesus. And that is a huge part as a church of our DNA. That is at the heart of who we are and what we strive to see each of us as believers doing, meeting Jesus, following Jesus, serving Jesus, and sharing Jesus. And while those four components are vital, they have provided for us a great foundation for us as we move forward into these next days and seasons of ministry. While those things are vital and still at the heart of who we are and what we do, the fact of the matter is, is for many people who were not here when those things were established as a church, there are many of those things that can be a little bit confusing for us. In fact, a few things that can be a little bit misunderstood along the way. So for example, we have often said that part of our vision is to have a culture where we invite people to meet Jesus. Many people, unfortunately, though, interpret that is as that our mission is to go throughout the community and invite people to come to church so that in coming to a church service, they can hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and be saved. And while that's a good thing and we want you to do that, the fact of the matter is every believer is called to be a missionary of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single child of God, we are called to take the gospel message literally to the highways and the hedges everywhere we go. In other words, my calling when I go to the soccer field this week or when I go to the park with my family on Saturday, my calling when I go to the doctor's office on Tuesday isn't to merely say, come to church where you can learn about Jesus, but it's to take the gospel message right then and there to tell them about the only one that can save their soul and change their life. So that right then and there, as a missionary of the gospel, I can go and tell them about Jesus and right then and there, invite them to know the Lord. There's a second thing that we've often said, and that is that we've often said that our de desire for all believers is that they would follow Jesus. And the fact of the matter is we have in our mind a very under clear understanding of what that would look like in the culture of our church, but sometimes that's misunderstood. For example, there are some who will say, well, of course I follow Jesus. That's why I go to the worship services on Sunday. Of course, that's why I give or that's why I do that. And therefore, I am following Jesus. In fact, there are many who would even make the argument, well, I don't have to go to church to follow Jesus. It's a personal, private conviction and devotion to the Lord. I don't have to do that to follow Jesus. I believe what God is wanting us to see from Acts chapter 2 is this. As a body of Christ, we must have a commitment to come together for the express purpose of experiencing Jesus in worship and glorifying and praising him. Every song that we sang this morning, every word that will be preached, every testimony that you might hear in the hallway, all of it should be for the purpose of glorifying and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second truth and a second commitment. And that is, I believe that God is calling us as a body of Christ, not only to recognize what happens when we come together corporately as the large body of Christ, but what should also happen when we leave this place on Sunday morning. When we leave this large corporate gathering, what should we be committed to? And I believe with the early church, we see loud and clear that they were committed to engage in a community of believers. Maybe you're here this morning as a person and you would sit here today and you would have a piece about making this statement. You would be able to say, yes, pastor, without a doubt in my heart and mind, I am a follower of Christ. I believe in Jesus. I know him as my Lord and Savior. Many of us would make that profession. If you're here this morning and you don't know that with certainty, I will share with you by the end of the service how you can know with absolute certainty that you have been forgiven of your sins and that you are saved. But if you know that with certainty here this morning, I have a question for you, and that question is this. Are you today growing in your relationship with the Lord or are you stagnant in your relationship with the Lord? 
Like, are, is your heart hot for the things of God where you're passionate about it and you're growing in it and your relationship with God is vibrant or is it cold and stale? The fact of the matter is there are many in the church, and I say church, I'm not just talking about Crosslink, but the big C church, there are many professing believers today who are still on the right team. They would still say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I remember that day I repented of my sins. Yes, by God's grace, I have been saved. There are many who are still on the right team who, frankly, their walk with the Lord has become very cold and very distant. Perhaps they remember a time when that walk with the Lord was new and fresh, they remember a time where they repented of their sin. They began to grow in that relationship with God. They remember a time when they began to read God's word and take it in, and God's word was just so alive. It was jumping off the pages, so to speak, into their heart and life. They remember a time when they were connected with other believers in a Sunday school class or a small group, a community group of some sort, and they remember that time when, when walking with Jesus was so vibrant and was so real and was so wonderful. And yet so oftentimes as believers, we begin to go through the process of life. And over time, the story of many is that life gets busy. Times get tough. Circumstances hit. Demands are high. Money is tight. Kids are growing. Sports commitments are many. The stress of life is overwhelming. And over time, if we're not careful, we get distracted. We get discouraged. And over time, we began to lose that vibrancy and that passion. We began to lose that connection with other believers. We began to lose that accountability and that encouragement that comes along with it. And over time, we find ourselves relegated on the sidelines, kind of watching on as a spectator instead of being engaged and involved in the work that God is doing. I was reminded of that even this past week. I was on my day off running some errands, purchasing some things for our house. And I walked into a business and I purchased some things that I needed for, for our water system at our house. And, and, and in the process of conversation, I began to have a conversation with an individual. And the individual spoke up and said, hey, uh, uh, tell me about the church. Now, and I, Paul, I didn't, didn't even think of it. I was wearing a cross-link T-shirt. And, and so I started telling the person about the church. And they said, well, I think I have a friend that goes there. And I said, well, that's great. And so I asked the individual, well, do you have a church home? Do you have any desire in being in a church? And in the process of the conversation, I found out this individual knows the Lord and loves the Lord and, and yes, identifies as a believer. But life hits and difficulties came. And we came and we came and we came and we came. And now it's been over a decade and there's been no connection and involvement with a body of believers. When we are not engaged in a community of believers, the, the reality is that the enemy can use that to distract us and discourage us and to divide us and bring us to a place where we become spectators, literally looking on instead of engaging in what's happening. Even in the context of our times together on Sunday, many can easily come for the purpose of seeing with no desire to serve, coming to spectate but not to participate, coming to experience but not really engaging. And I believe at the same time, many of those same people will often say, but I really want to grow. I really want to grow. And I believe God is showing us if we want to grow, there are some commitments and some steps to take that will help us in that process. So what does that look like in the context of community? What did it look like in the early church? I believe God shows us three simple things from Acts chapter 2 as it relates to being in community. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the need for Christ-centered community. The need for Christ-centered community. Can everybody say the need? The need for Christ-centered community. In Acts chapter 2, I believe that God is showing us clearly that every believer has a need for this type of community. Now, we all have needs this morning, I would imagine. 
We all have a need to, to love and to be loved. We all have a need for, for food. And some of us are already thinking, well, man, lunch isn't too far around the corner. We got that need that we're aware of. Some needs we're immediately aware of in our life. But, but there's some needs that maybe we often don't realize immediately. The Bible tells us, I believe, there is a great need in our life to be a part and to belong to a Christ-centered community. Now, all of us understand, to some extent, the need for community. In fact, many people will look for community, a place of belonging, in many different avenues. For example, some will look for community in the context of going to the gym. They'll go to the gym and they'll have a group of buddies that they are encouraged by, that they have accountability with. And of course, that can bring some benefits, but they'll look for it at the gym. Some will look for it in places like the ball field, whether they're an athlete who is developing camaraderie with a group of friends or they're, they're the parent that's there watching their children and they're building relationships with others and figuring out who's going to bring snacks next week. And all we look for community in those things. Those things are not necessarily bad. There are some men who would say, oh, I, I don't really need community. I'm pretty good. I mean, I, even when on my own, I can be independent. And at the same time, most of those same men, when they begin to talk about the glory days of their life, will talk back to the time they were in the military and the camaraderie they had with those men, or they'll talk back to the day when they were on the high school football team or this environment and event, and they talk about the glory days, whether they realize it or not, they are describing a season when they were in community with other people. There's all types of communities that we can look for to, to meet this sense of belonging. But I believe what God is showing us in Acts chapter 2 is our need for Christ-centered community. Now, two things about it. First off, there is a practical need for this type of community. Now, picture the scene for just a moment. Jesus, the Bible tells us that 120 people had gathered in the upper room for the purpose of prayer and seeking God's will and God's direction. They leave that upper room, I believe. I believe they're in the temple area when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands and preaches the gospel message. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one Savior of the world. His name is Jesus Christ. Look at all the miracles that he performed proving who he is. He died like he said he would. He rose again like he said he would. And he's coming again for all who believes just like he said he would. And so believe. And the Bible says 3,000 souls that day were saved. Now, I am not a mathematician. I'm not an accountant. I don't know percentages off the top of my head. But I do know that if you go from a group of 120 to 24 hours later, a group of 3,000, that is exponential increase in growth. Would you agree? If you agree, would you say amen? If you don't agree, you need to learn to count and go back to school, okay, right? Incredible growth. Well, here's a simple question for the early church. How do you effectively minister to 3,000 people? How, how do you take these 3,000 people who literally hours ago looked at Jesus as if he was a heretic and a liar and a blasphemer? How do you look at the very people who crucified Jesus and chanted, crucify him? How do you look at these people who are now believing in the very one they rejected? They're wanting to commit to follow the one that they have rejected. How do you now minister to them and disciple them? How do you teach them? The truth of who Jesus, how do you teach them all, all the connections, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies? How do you do that effectively? And, and I believe the practical need for this is that the early church understood the need not only to gather together corporately as they did in the temple, but the Bible says in verse 46, they gathered from house to house. Now the houses in that day were extremely small much smaller than most of us, what we would experience today and call a house. And literally, we're talking about a handful of people that would be gathered together. 
But yes, even though they gathered corporately to experience Jesus in worship, there was a commitment and a practical level of understanding the way that we know each other's story, the way that we know who each other is, the way that we encourage each other, the way that we instruct each other, the way that we hold each other accountable, the way that we minister to one another, the way that we grow together is to do so in the context of a Christ-centered, smaller community. There's a practical need. But secondly, there is a spiritual need. There is a spiritual need for this Christ-centered community. Now, churches throughout the centuries, at least here in America and in other parts of the world, for a long time have called groups Sunday school, and then they went through life groups, and then they went through Bible fellowship names, and today at Crosslink, we call them community groups. Regardless of your title, regardless of your structure, regardless of your name, the reality is these smaller groups, this sense of community, there is a spiritual need for these They are needed ultimately because it is through these Christ-centered communities that God uses them to equip us and to mold us and to shape us. It is through these groups, this connection with other believers, this time, as we'll see in just a moment, where we're understanding God's word, that God grows us to be the people he wants us to be. Now, many will argue, well, you don't have to be in a Christ-centered community in order to love Jesus. You don't have to be in a Christ-centered community in order to be a Christian. And the answer to that is that's that's entirely true. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works so that none of us may boast. Not a single work you can do, not a single religious action you can do to save your soul and change your life. If you go to anybody to talk about salvation, they say, well, to be saved, you got to do this, 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 and this. Put a big red X because it's completely off. We are saved only by God's grace through faith. It is not of works so that none of us will boast. We do not have to be a part, if you will, of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered community in order to be saved. But I will say this, we are not likely to be a vibrant, growing Christian for the long haul without being in a community with other believers. The fact of the matter is trials come, difficulties come. The Bible says that we have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So yes, you might run well for a season and you might have passion for Christ for a season, but I'm telling you, when that fellowship wanes, when that distance becomes a normal everyday part of your life, when you're not committed to engaging in the life of Christ with other believers, over time you lose that passion and over time you lose that zeal and over time you reach a place where you're no longer vibrant and growing as you once were. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the best years of my walk and relationship with the Lord to be years that have already passed, but to let them be the days that God gives me in the present as I follow him. Say, Pastor, how is that the case? It's the case because when you study God's word, we get a pretty clear picture of what is to happen in the context of a Christ-centered community. Please understand this morning that I consider it an incredible, incredibly humbling honor and joy to serve as a pastor. I do not take God's calling lightly. And it is truly my desire in anything and everything that God would enable me to do that he alone gets the glory. But the reason it's so important is because if you're only getting biblical instruction and biblical encouragement from your pastor or pastors, you have a very uh, limited understanding of the calling and role and purpose of the church in your life. Yes, there is a calling for the pastors. Yes, there is a calling for the overseers. But the reality is God has a clear calling for every member of the body of Christ. 
In fact, I would say them to you in three things, three ways. How does the body of Christ minister to each other? And I think we'll see this in the early church. I think three things. Number one, in the context of Christian community, we are to speak to one another about the Lord. We are to speak to one another about the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says it's this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we come together in the context of this larger body of Christ, yes, but also in the context of the, that Christian community, we have a calling and responsibility in God's word to encourage each other and to instruct each other and to admonish each other. That is a calling that God has given us in being a part of his body. Not only that, but secondly, we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That key word is the word stimulate. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, I love this word for stimulate because literally it, it, it literally means to stir up is, is what the Bible is describing. In fact, the Greek word that was given there for stimulate had a very interesting picture in that culture. And it was the picture literally of a log that was on fire, Get the picture of a, of a fire that would take place. Now, I don't know about you, but I love this time of year. Any fans that would say, man, my favorite season of the year is fall? Anybody like that? Hallelujah. Thank you. You are the sanctified ones in the room, okay? I'm joking when I say that. I love this time of year. Like, not when it's in the 90s almost. I don't like that. But man, when the temperature starts to get cool, the leaves start to begin to change. And one of the things I love about it, besides the many wonderful things like football, I love getting outside in the backyard and having a bonfire or a campfire, whatever you want to call it, okay? Alabama, you call it a bonfire. And I love getting the logs together and piling them up and, and having a fire. I, I love taking those glorified heaven's treats called marshmallows and making s'mores. And, and I just love that together. But if you've ever been at a campfire, you know the fire does not automatically keep going on its own. You know, you'll have those logs stacked up and there'll be a fire and there'll be a flame. But over time, as the flame burns, what happens? The logs begin to fall. Sometimes they'll collapse within themselves. Sometimes a log will fall down and roll off away from the group. But you understand, if you're leading that fire, you understand in order for that fire to continue, for it to continue to give its warmth, for it to continue to be effective, you have to stir it up. You got to get a shovel. You got to get a poker. You got to get something. And you got to stir it up so that oxygen gets in there and feeds it and gives it life. You got to get another log and you got to put it on the fire. You got to stir it up to keep that fire going. The reality is there are some times that a log will fall off and it'll roll to the side and it'll still be hot for a moment and you might even still see a flame at the bottom of it. But if you don't do anything with that, eventually that flame is extinguished. And then there'll be some smoke for a moment. If you do nothing, if you just let it sit there, eventually all you will have is a log that is covered in black as a simple visual reminder that this log was once close to the fire and once burned bright. 
When the Bible says, let us consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, what he's saying is this. He's saying, church, you come together, you fellowship and you worship. You come together, I believe, in the context of Christian community. Why? Because it's in that that we stimulate one another. We stir each other up towards the love of God and to the works of God. We stir each other up so that that passion and that vibrance is clear and it's present and we're growing in the things of God. So many of us are like that log that's rolled off to the wayside. We're still in proximity. But frankly, even in our own hearts, all we have is the memory of when we were once on fire, when it was once real and passionate. The purpose of these communities is that we're to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Third, we are to serve one another in the context of a Christ-centered community. Galatians 5.13 says it this way, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but... Through love, serve one another is what God says. Well, how are you going to know the needs of each other if you're not engaged in community? How are you going to know the struggles and the concerns, the hurts, the pain? How are you going to know those things if you're not engaged in community with other believers? I believe what God is calling many of us to is he's calling us to a place where we don't just show up to watch and to see, but we show up to get engaged and to get involved. Instead of coming and showing up and sitting on the sideline and watching all that God's doing, God's calling us to get off the sideline, get involved, and roll up our sleeves and do the work of the Lord in the context of community. This morning, I was talking with the deacons before we came into the early service. And I mean, every Sunday uh, with, our, with our deacons, and we have a time of prayer together for the service. And and so they ask, well, pastor, what's on your heart today? What are you planning to preach about? And so I shared with them. And, and, and one of the men quickly spoke up and he said, he said so you're, you're telling us that you don't, uh, you, you don't want us to be orange eaters. I said, orange eaters? What are you talking about? And then I began to think about it. The gentleman who shared this with me was a football coach. And he said, oh, an orange eater, an orange eater is the guy on the team that shows up, he puts on the jersey, puts on the pads, he looks a part of the team, but he's content instead of getting involved in the game to sit on the bench the whole game and eat oranges. That's an orange eater. And I was like, well, I hadn't thought about it that way, but thank you for that illustration. What I believe God has called, that should never be the case in the body of Christ. We should have such a love for the Lord and such a devotion to him that we devote ourselves to the things that he was committed to. And he was committed to the context of the body of believers. And we see that demonstrated here in the early church. So secondly, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the focus of a Christ-centered community. The focus of a Christ-centered community. The Bible tells us in verse 42 that this early church, as thousands were being saved, they each were continually devoting themselves to something. Now this phrase, they devoted themselves, it literally means they continually gave themselves to it. It was of importance in their life. They were committed to this. It wasn't optional. It wasn't about convenience. It wasn't about was there something better as a, on the table. No, it was something of absolute devotion that they were committed to. The focus. I think it's important for us to understand this morning that these believers understood that a right relationship with God should also translate to a right relationship with man. A right relationship with God should be demonstrated in a right relationship in this context with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but we are all relational people, every single one of us. Have you ever thought about why that's the case? Why are we so relational? Oftentimes people will come and visit here and be a part of the worship services and 
They'll fill out a guest card, and I'll call them throughout the week and say, thank you for being here. And, and if I get them on the phone, I'm able to ask them how I can pray for them. And nine times out of the ten, if someone is new to the area, they'll ask me to pray something like this. Pastor, would you pray for me to find new friendships here? Pastor, would you pray for me to find good connections with people here? Pastor, would you pray for me to find a, a group to connect with? I'll say something along those lines. Why? Because they understand their need for healthy relationships. Our connections, our relationships will either draw us closer to the Lord or distract us and pull us away. And so they'll pray accordingly. Well, why are we relational? We are relational because we were made in the image of God. That's why we're relational. The reason why we long for various relationships ultimately is because we were made in the image of God and God is a relational God. If God wanted to, he could have created us to be mindless robots doing whatever he willed and pleased. But the fact is, God created us to be relational. And so it's interesting to know, even in the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. And then what does he do? The Bible says he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. Why? Because God desired relationship with his creation. Why did Jesus come and die on the cross for the sins of the world? Why did that even happen? Jesus could, God could have easily condemned us all to hell to be separated from all of eternity. But God is a relational God who desires for us to know him and relate with him. As a result, we all have a desire and a need for relationship. There's a lot of things we can give, find community in. We can find community at the gym. And it can be good for us. We can get physically healthy. We can have discipline in our life and control our diet. And we can exercise and build friendships. And that's great. But that community can't do for you what a Christ-centered community can do for you. Going on the ball field and coaching soccer and being involved with parent groups and different things like that, man, they're wonderful. It can give you an opportunity to build relationships and to point people to Jesus that may never even darken the door of a church. It can be great. But that community can't do for you what a Christ-centered community can do for you. You, you can be involved in all sorts of community organizations. You can build homes for the homeless and you can serve various needs in our community and situation. And those things are great, but those communities alone cannot do for you what a Christ-centered community can do for you. Why? Because it's in a Christ-centered community that God molds us and shapes us and equips us to be the vessels that he would have us to be. The focus of true Christ-centered community is to focus on Christ and his word so that ultimately we might learn how to live for him and glorify him in all that we do. It's in these community groups, it's in this Christian community, literally as iron sharpens iron, that we sharpen one another as we focus on four things. What are they? Verse 42. Notice what the early church focused on. Here's what they were focused on. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, say it with me, prayer. They were devoted, the focus of this Christian community were four things. They devoted themselves to the word of God. When the Bible says they were committed to the apostles' teaching, they kept giving themselves to it. Please understand, this was not the ideas, the opinions, the hopes and dreams of the apostles. When the apostles preached, when the apostles taught, they were declaring the very word of God. In fact, Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, what would happen after he ascended into heaven. Here's what he said. He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. 
He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me and will take of mine and will disclose it to you. When the apostles were teaching, when they were proclaiming the good news, when they were telling others how Jesus had fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies, here's what they were doing. They weren't just telling what their opinions were. They were telling the very things that Jesus himself had taught them and the very things that the Holy Spirit of God was revealing to them in the moment. In other words, they were speaking the very word of God. And that's why the early church, they received it as that. They didn't take it as the apostles preaching. They took it as the word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul commended the believers and he said this. He says, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, listen to this statement, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. They were studying God's word. They were devoting themselves to it. But not only that, they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship. Now, fellowship in our day is a very loosely translated word. We might say the word fellowship to describe any moment that we have with someone. Well, I ran into so-and-so at the gas station, and we had a moment of fellowship together. Well, I sat down at a table uh, with three or four people, and we, we talked for a little while, and we had fellowship. Listen, you can be sitting right next to someone. If there's issues in your heart, you can be a million miles away. You know what I mean? The idea of fellowship literally means that they had, it refers to having something in common. The word fellowship literally is giving us the picture of the common bond, the common connection that we share because of Christ. In other words, Christian fellowship is describing the unity and the love that we have because of the connection that we share in Jesus Christ. It means regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of shape and size, regardless of someone's football team, regardless of whether they sing beautifully or have no voice at all, regardless, if you are in Christ Jesus, that we have a connection that comes only from him. And as a result, there is to be a mutual love, a mutual respect, a mutual care and concern for one another. You say, but pastor, that person is just, we're so different. We see things so differently. But pastor, our personalities are, are so different. You mean that I, I have to have fellowship with, with that brother or sister Christ? Pastor, that person's weird. There's a Greek term for that. Get over it, okay? I mean, in all seriousness, like, we're all going to be different. But there's all kinds of preferences that we have in this group. There's all kinds of likes and dislikes that are, that are different. But the thing that brings us together is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our love for him. And if our love for him is what it ought to be, then our love for brothers and sisters in Christ will naturally follow. They're committed to the fellowship. They're also committed, thirdly, to the breaking of bread. Now, if, if you're looking for a good place to say amen in the message, that's it right there, the breaking of bread, right? There are some who read this translation, the breaking of bread, and say, well, see, this is referring to the Lord's Supper, when the church comes together and takes the Lord's Supper. And I would say that that was certainly a part of their gatherings together. I'm going to tell us here in verse 46, but that's not limited to that in this verse. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us here in verse 46 that not only were they joining together in this fellowship and joining together studying the apostles' teaching, but they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The early church was committed in the context of community to breaking bread together and having refreshments, enjoying a meal, having that time of connection 
together. It's amazing to me, even now in 2019, with all that's changed in the world, how the simple act of sitting down with someone and having a meal still crosses all cultures and speaks of the warmth and the affection and the hospitality and care that we have for one another. It still does today. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. There are many of you here, of course, in the Harrisonburg area that I've had a privilege to sit down and have a meal with, and it's been a blessing. I look forward to those moments and those times together. But, but it's interesting, back in uh, November, Pastor Scott and I went to Canada, we went to Montreal on a vision trip as we were praying about how God would have us to help uh, partner with Voyage Church and the church that's being planted there. We went to Montreal and we had an incredible time of ministry together, a great time of fellowship together, he and I, as we, he showed me a lot of the Canadian culture and the restaurants and the scenes and various things. Had an incredible time. But one of my most enjoyable moments of that entire trip was when the co-pastor of the church that's planting there, he and his wife and their children invited us into their home for a meal. And just, just showing up in this, this high-rise apartment, I had never been in, in Canada, never been in Montreal in this large city, and just, just going there and sitting at the table and enjoying a meal and talking about life and talking about how the Lord was working and moving and hearing their heart for the city and what God's doing, there was something so enriching and connecting in that moment that it just moved me. One of my highlights in the entire trip. Not only that, this past June, Brother Daniel Kovitko and I had the privilege to go to the Ukraine. And we saw many sites of the Ukraine and we, we, we met many people, brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet at the same time, the thing that one of the things that stood out to me the most was in that culture, how they would, that we would sit down at a, at a table together and really some of our most enriching times of talking about life and talking about what God was doing and talking about struggles and praying together. Many of those enriching times happened over a meal. It wasn't about the food that was there. It wasn't about whether I knew what meat it was or it wasn't. It wasn't about those things in the moment. What mattered in that moment is that we were sharing life together. We were in community together. We were connected together in those moments in Christ. There's something still enriching about it even today, but fourthly, the Bible says the focus of those groups was that they were, there was prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to Prayer. I don't have to go into that, but here's the simple reality. We preached a whole sermon series on it in the beginning of this year. Here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is every time we see the early church gathered, every single time they're gathered together in the book of Acts, here's what we see them doing. They're praying and they're recognizing their dependence upon God. They're recognizing that God is still wanting to work and move in their midst. They're confessing their dependence upon God and they're praying and they're interceding and they're asking for God's mercy and asking for God's provision. They're asking for God to do the impossible and they're desperate for God to move. Could it be that one of the reasons in the Church of America it seems to be so dwindling and so darkened and so, so much like we've lost our fervor, could it be that we've lost our dependence upon God in prayer? The early church was a praying church. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 6, all throughout the New Testament, Paul is encouraging them, pray, pray, pray for all men, pray for people in authority, pray for the saints throughout all the pray. 29 times in the book of Acts, God calls his people to pray. 100 times in the New Testament, God calls his people to pray. Guess what God's still calling us to do in 2019? He's calling us to pray. That happens, of course, when we come together as a large body, but it should also happen in the focus of those Christ-centered communities. I've got to move quickly and close, and that is this. I want you to consider then the impact of Christ-centered community. What happens 
when God's people don't just show up on Sunday mornings. Like, like what happens when living for the Lord Jesus Christ and connecting with the body of Christ, what happens when we come together in that context, devoting ourselves to the word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? Three things happened in verses 43 through 47. Number one, God worked in them. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It means everyone, they didn't just sense a sense of awe and wonder and amazement. They kept feeling this sense. Does that mean that every time you come to a worship service, you're going to feel it? Not necessarily. Does that mean every time you walk into a community group, you're going to sense it? Not necessarily. But here's the reality. When we come together as a body of believers and we focus on God and his word, guess what happens? God begins to teach us and God begins to unpack his scripture and open our eyes to things that maybe we've never seen before. We begin to have a new understanding of, of what God is saying and what God is doing. We begin to have new clarity on what God is calling us to do. Not only that, we begin to have new evidences of how God is still working even today. Sometimes when we don't see God working in our lives the way that we anticipated or hoped, we come to the conclusion that God's not still working. But when we come together in the place of community, Christ-centered community, we begin to hear loud and clear how God is still working and moving. And just say, for example, we have numerous community groups throughout this church, throughout this entire valley. North, south, east, and west, they're all over the place. And we're praying about more because there's, greater, there's still greater need and greater opportunity. But, but, but for example, there were some things this past week where I had faced some challenges and there were some struggles. And of course, I know God's still working and moving, but, but I, I'd had a, a, rough, a rough few days earlier in the week. And then we got to our community group on Wednesday night, and I opened up the community group with a question. That question was, what are your praises? What are your God moments? How have you seen God working and moving this week? And one person spoke up and said, well, I have a praise. And she spoke up and said, listen, my grandfather had been diagnosed with cancer, and it was inoperable, and it was bad, and it wasn't good, and he was going through these treatments and all these different things. The doctor said there's nothing they could do. He had like a 0.2% chance of survival. But we found out this week, his cancer's completely gone. And the whole, and, and I'm gonna be honest, I just sat there in awe, like, really? That's incredible. So we asked questions as she shared. It was incredible to give God praise. Like, wow, look at what God's doing. And then there was another lady who spoke up. We, we prayed for her son a few years ago who was running from the Lord. And, and I remember about a year ago this time, we, we praised God that he had gotten right with the Lord and was, was, had been baptized, surrendered his life to the Lord, and she gave the praise the other night. He's just started seminary. <laughs> Can I just tell you, like, in that group of community of believers, it was so encouraging for me to be reminded that if I'd get my eyes off of the jungle that I'm in in this moment, the difficult situation, and just look up to realize and listen to the brothers and sisters in my life that are speaking, God is still working and moving. This early church had a sense of all of how God was working. God was working in them. But secondly, not only did God work in them personally, God worked among them. The Bible says that they were together and had all things in common. This word together means they were unified. They weren't divided. 
They weren't pulled in a million different. They had a unified love for one another and they had all things in common, verse 45 and 46. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Verse 46, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. God not only worked in them, God worked among them. Differences, yes. Imperfections, yes. In a broken world, yes. And yet there was such a love for the Lord and such a love for each other that they were unified. And they were so, so much in love with the Lord and so unified as a body of believers that as they were aware of needs, they sacrificially gave. There are some throughout the years that have taken this pastor's scripture to endorse communism and various other things. Here's the reality. This was not the apostles forcing this upon them. This wasn't a government takeover. These were people who genuinely loved the Lord, and because they loved the Lord, when they became aware of needs, they literally sacrificially gave of their own ability and opportunity to meet whatever needs they could. The love of God will always compel us to do more than we would have ever done in our own flesh. They love the Lord. And because they love the Lord, God worked among them, and we see that demonstrated in the way they loved each other. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says it this way. We know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And I think everybody in the church would say, amen. But listen to the next statement. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? They were bound together by the love of God and they were faithful as a result to care for one another, help one another, bear one another's burdens and serve one another for the glory of Jesus. And finally, not only did God work in them, not only did God work among them, God worked through them. Notice the statement, verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Was the early church perfect? No. Did they live in an easy society? No. In fact, they were soon to be facing persecution far greater than any of us can imagine in our culture today. And yet, they loved each other. They loved the Lord. They were committed to each other. And God faithfully worked through them in such a way that day by day by day, God would save souls and change lives. As the gospel message went forth, God would save souls and change lives. I love how Warren Wiersbe summarized it. He said it this way. The Christians you meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for services as usual. They met daily, cared daily, won souls daily, searched the scriptures daily, and increased in number daily. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day -day reality and not a once-a-week routine. I pray that be true here at Crosslink Community Church. You know what's amazing to me when I think about how God worked and moved in and through that church that day? It is no wonder they had the impact that they did, that God moved in the way he did. Because truly, the world around them was hearing the gospel message. The news that Jesus had died on the cross and risen again from the grave, that the news that literally all who believe in him will be saved was beginning to spread all throughout the city of Jerusalem and I believe throughout that empire at that day. But here was the powerful thing that I think God used to further that message. Not only was the culture and the world 
hearing the message that Jesus saves, that Jesus can forgive you, that Jesus can change you and make you a brand new creation, that Jesus can bring salvation to your soul. Not only were they hearing the message, the world around them was also looking at the lives that had been changed. And through the evidence of lives that had been changed, they were convinced that it is true. That Jesus is who he says he is. Man can be forgiven. Man can be changed. Why? Because they heard the truth of the gospel and they saw the power of the gospel evident in the lives that were changed. I am so convinced today that the God that was God in Acts chapter 2 is still God today. The, the God that still saved souls in Acts chapter 2 is still the God who is saving souls today. I, I believe that the God who moved mightily in and through the early church in Acts chapter 2, guess what? He's still the same God who's still moving amongst his people today. He is completely committed to us. He has given his own son so that we could be saved and be in right relationship with him. The question is not, is God committed to us? The question is simply this, are we committed to him? That's the question. And my hope and prayer today is this. Many of us say, oh, yes, I want God to work in my life. Yes, I want God to work among us as a church. Yes, I want God to work through us. But the question is this. Are you willing to commit to engage in Christ-centered community so that you can grow, so that you can experience him, and so that you can be further equipped to be the light that he wants you to be? I believe wholeheartedly, if we'll make that commitment, God will use it to mold us and shape us to be the people he's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for how you're working and moving in our hearts and lives even now. God, I pray today that we would receive your word as your word, not as merely the opinion of a man, but God, that we would receive it. We would look at this early church in Acts chapter two and that there would be within our own hearts and lives just a hunger for you, Father, and a hunger to see you move in our hearts and lives and among us and through us in that way. Father, uh, it is no wonder that you did the things that you did in Acts chapter 2 when you had a people who were completely dependent upon you and devoted to you in your word. And God, I confess that in my life and in our day, man, it, there's a lot of things that seem to pull at us to try to get our attention. There are a lot of things that can be distractions. And when hardships come and the testings of our faith occur, man, it, it can be so difficult. But God, I pray that we would recognize today where we have become cold, Father, where we've become stagnant. And I pray, God, today that we would draw back to a right relationship with you. And God, if there's anyone here today that knows nothing of a relationship with you, they don't have that confidence and that assurance, I pray today that you would speak into their heart and mind the simple assurance that you love them and you desire for them to have a relationship with you, so much so that you made a way for them to be saved. And so God, would you move and speak to our hearts and lives right now? I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.